This is the Context Matters Podcast, and I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me and then talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. We are back this week with Dr. Carmen Imes. She is an associate professor of Old Testament at Biola, and she is the host of a weekly video series called Torah Tuesdays. Last week, we talked about how the command, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, can be more accurately translated, you shall not bear the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Dr. Imes then explained the logic behind Bearing God's Name, which also happens to be the title of her book. So we've had an Exodus theme going on, which reminds me of last season when we explored concepts of slavery and biblical law, but in conversation with African-American spirituals, music, and jazz. Dr. Imes has written about slavery as well, but in terms of understanding what the actual biblical laws are saying, especially about topics that really rub up against modern sensibilities. So I asked Dr. Imes to help us understand the slavery laws, why they even exist, and what we do with them now. I think one thing that people sometimes assume about my book or my approach to Old Testament law, just from the title, Why Sinai Still Matters, is that I think we should just reinstitute all the Old Testament laws and eat kosher and celebrate all the festivals and and do all these things. And that would be to misunderstand the book. So I think it all matters, but I think context matters too. Yes. So... I think God was speaking to Israel in a particular cultural and historical moment in which he's helping them see what it would look like to demonstrate his character in that context. We cannot just clip out these laws and apply them now and have them have the same effect. So that's, that's kind of an overarching approach to all of the laws. Like, It's not as easy as cut and paste. We actually have to do the hard work of thinking about what did this law communicate in that context? And what is the truth about my context and how I might communicate that here? And that is messy work. And we're not going to always come to a sense of agreement about what that looks like. But I think it's also really fun work. So maybe can I give a quick example that's less controversial just to give people a bigger picture? So my students and no, I, just and- push into the controversy. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Let, let's ease in. Let's ease in. So before teaching at Biola, I spent four years teaching at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. And it's called Three Hills because that's really all there is. There are three hills and we're, the, the whole town is surrounded by wheat and canola fields. And so many of my students were from farming families or from small towns. And so that was really interesting because there are laws, as you know, in the Torah that talk about agricultural practices. So for example, do not reap to the edges of your field. So that presented a really interesting um, sort of case study for us to talk about. And I said, okay, how many of you are from farm families? And I had some people raise their hands and I said, do you reap to the edges of your field? And they're like, well, yeah. I said, are you in violation of Torah if you do that as a farmer? Because I, I mean, I can easily say, well, I don't have a field, 
So I don't have to think about this one, right? <laughs> right. But for my farming students, they should at least think about this one. No, we we don't we don't do that. We reap all of our harvest. I said, okay, are you in violation of the Torah? And as we wrestled through this, we came to the conclusion that no, it's not a violation of Torah because because if you didn't reap to the edges of your field today, you're not going to have widows and orphans coming to glean like pick, picking the grain that's left along the edges, that's trespassing and that's illegal. So unless you're going to sort of, and people don't know how to do it either. Like we're not set up, we're not set up for individuals to come like pick up grain and that we wouldn't know what to do with it. So we talked about what would be a way to preserve the spirit of the law or the principle of the law and express that in our context. So, you know, somebody suggested, well, we could reap all of our harvest and then we could donate some of it to a food bank which is great, but it's still not quite the same thing because gleaning is offering the dignity of a day's labor to people who are marginalized and don't have their own land that they can farm. And so in a context where they don't have land or they don't have a good crop this year, or for whatever reason, they don't have enough, this is offering them an opportunity to work. Mm -hmm. And bringing it to a food bank doesn't do quite the same thing. Uh, unless maybe the food bank is set up as a co-op sort of where everybody participates. So we talked about ways to provide jobs for people who are marginalized. Could you hire people who would not otherwise be able to find work? Somebody who has just been released from prison and can't pass a background check. Somebody who is a new arrival. Somebody who has mental health or physical health conditions that make it difficult for them to put in a consistent 40-hour work week. Could you be the kind of employer that takes people on the margins and offers them a path mm-hmm. to sustainable living? And so that was really fun to talk about. And then we sort of extrapolated from that to, you know, what if you don't have a field, but you own a store? Or what if you have another kind of business? And so we got to think about all sorts of ways that we could capture the spirit of this law and apply it in our context. So so that's the kind of work that I think we need to do. And it's easier to do that with gleaning than it is with the slavery laws. But now we can do the hard stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. Slaves and slavery. It's not like the transatlantic slave uh, trade and the atrocities that were done. Uh, Mm -hmm. in this country and in other European countries, it's not really the same thing. And actually, it's nice that you started with the the agricultural laws because Mm -hmm. the slave idea is often because the agriculture isn't working out for someone or for a family, they they still have to eat. And so there still has to be some kind of monetary agreement that is reached. So it's Sometimes more like not capturing people and forcing them as much as someone needing to survive and offering their services. Services, yes. I would say, so the slavery laws that we're talking about, you can find them in Exodus 21 verses 2 through 11. Those are the ones I've spent the most time on. There's also a few in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But I would say that maybe the first thing to say is that these are casuistic laws which means they're a response to a situation. There is never a place in scripture where God says, go out and grab yourself a slave or go out Mm -hmm. and buy yourself a slave. Like he's not encouraging the acquisition of slaves. The, The situation is if you have 
a Hebrew slave or servant, or I would probably say an indentured servant. That might Mm. be a a more accurate way of rendering what this is. Then here's, here are the parameters within which that can operate. Like here's how to treat them if you're in this situation. And as you said, this is a work opportunity for someone who otherwise might be completely destitute. So it's always voluntary. It's always limited term. For, for males, it's always limited term. And the, the goal of the laws is to restrain what the master or employer is allowed to do and when the person is to be set free. So if you look in in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, all the places where it talks about where there's regulations around this, they're all in sections that are concerned with Sabbath and Sabbath release. So the context is not how to get slaves, but when to set them free. When have they when have they fulfilled their duty? So I think probably the most likely scenario is that someone is in a position where their crops have completely failed and they have no way to pay their debts. And so instead of instead of starving to death, they're being given an opportunity to work for the person they owe a debt to, and they can work that debt off over the period of six years. And in the seventh year, they go free. I think that's that's the big picture. So this is not go out and grab people and force them to work without pay. There's a there's a limited scope for it. Yeah, I love and I'm more familiar because I hang out on the Deuteronomy side of things. But, you know, they they share the same flavor in that they do. It's making sure that a debt will be canceled. Like people yes. are are not living under the burden of debt for yes. the rest of their lives, like yes. compounding and, interest that makes it impossible right. for them to get out from under it. And that has a real beautiful side to it, even it if it does. Yeah. Yeah. So listeners may be familiar with the work of International Justice Mission, who who works to set people free from modern day slavery. And one of the situations that they repeatedly encounter is these brick factories in India, mm-hmm. where a poor family who has really no means of paying their debts or surviving is offered this opportunity to work for a brick factory. And what it turns out to be is what you said, there's compounding interest so that the entire family has to work tirelessly, even the children making bricks without rest. And they are forced to stay. They're not allowed to leave. And the more they work, the more debt they accumulate so that they can never actually free themselves. So that it's there are deeply problematic and unethical business practices that keep them there for life. And Exodus and Deuteronomy are saying, you can't do that. If someone has to offer themselves to you as a, as a servant to work for you, six years is the absolute limit. Unless that person decides, I want to work for you for the rest of my life, which might be an attractive option if they're just not good at farming. If the <laughs> land that they inherited is just never going to produce a good crop. Or if there's some other, I, I don't know what other situations there might be. I think Deuteronomy adds in the scenario of if they're a foreigner. And so if you're a foreigner and you're not a member of one of the 12 tribes, you don't have land. You can't inherit land because it belongs to the 12 tribes. So you would have no means of of making a living. It's not like you can just go down and work for the local gas station or be a checker at Walmart. There, there, 
their industry doesn't work like that in biblical times. You grew your own food. And if you couldn't grow food, you starved. So, so you might decide, no, I'd really like to be part of this household for the rest of my life and continue to work on their farm because then I don't have to worry about, you know, maintaining my own property. Yeah. Now attached to that, and this comes out really clearly and uncomfortably uh, with a Mm. quick read in Mm. the Exodus portion in Exodus 21 is Exodus makes the distinction between, and you clarified this in an earlier sentence, the men can go free um, after or in the seventh year, but the women can't. And this is when all of us cringe Cringe. and pull our shoulders up and we're like, ah, Mm -hmm. why do the women always get the brunt of all of these laws? Um, Can we just say like, why does it sound so unfair? And what is the better way to, to read this contextually? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's two major factors playing into this that that have helped me as I've wrestled with this text. And I, I was working on this particular passage, all of these slavery laws in verses two through 11, right after the death of George Floyd. So right. Like it was a highly charged and emotional time to be thinking about slavery and racism and all of the, you know, things that in our own context come into play. And I was desperate to, to see like, Lord, what, how is this good news? How is this scripture? How is this inspired and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? Because right now it, it reads really yucky. And I think the more time I spent with it, the more I could see like the light was dawning for me. Mm. So two factors, I would say, one is that this, there are a number of clues in this passage that indicate that she is not coming just to serve the family by like doing their laundry or cooking for them. She is marrying into the family. Mm. There's a, there's several, several phrases that, that demonstrate that. So verse eight, if she does not please the master who has selected her for himself implies that she has a specific connection to him. And then in verse nine, if he selects her for his son indicates that he seems to be arranging a marriage for his son. So he, so the woman who's coming into the household is not like the men in the previous verses who come in as a, as a you know day laborer for a limited period of time, she's marrying either the master or his son. And it says, if he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter which means she is not the son's sex slave and she is not free to be, she's not available to be used by anyone else in the family sexually. He has Mm. to treat her as a member of the family. She's like a daughter. Mm. So I think actually, and, and then it says, if he marries another woman, he can't deprive the first one of her food, clothing, or marital rights. So she's a wife. She's not a slave. She can't be traded he is not allowed to set her free because she's in a permanent, because marriage is meant to be permanent. If there's a sexual relationship between her and a family member, that means she's married them. And now she can't just be traded around or sold. I think it says he has no right to sell her to foreigners. Like he can't decide like, oh, marrying you is a bad idea. I'm just going to send you on down the road. That's not an option. The only option is to for setting her free is letting her be redeemed by her family of origin. So I think that's the first thing to notice is this is 
not just servanthood. This is marriage. And then I think the, the part that really grates against us is this first phrase, if a man sells his daughter right. and we just like, what? Not only is right. this slavery or sex slavery, but this is like child trafficking. Yeah. It sounds really egregious. So what helps me with this one is to, to recognize that in any marriage in the ancient world, there is a financial transaction that happens. Normally, the woman comes with a dowry into the family that she marries, and then and there's a bride price paid to her family of origin. So money, money goes both directions. And that's not because she's property. It's it's a way of solidifying the relationship, the commitment between the two families. And it's a putting a safety net in place so that if something goes terribly wrong for this woman, she has the dowry to live on. And if she ends up and, and she leaves her family of origin. And so they have the loss of her contribution to the household, but that's being compensated by this, by this gift. So there's a, there's a cementing of the relationship in both directions. So what I'm imagining is happening here is like with the male servant, there is some form of destitution, some level of destitution that a normal marriage cannot be arranged where there's money going both ways. So this family's impoverished, they can't provide a dowry, but the man still manages to arrange a marriage for her in which money is going back to her family. So he can't provide for her. The father can't provide for his daughter anymore, but he finds a man to marry her and the man gives the bride price. I think that's why we have financial yeah. terms going on. Not that she's being bought or sold, but that it's a it's an unequal kind of marriage arrangement in that the, the families probably don't have the same financial stability or the same social standing. So actually the master or new husband who is, paying the bride price is doing her an enormous service by being willing to marry her, even though it doesn't elevate his social status. He's providing a home for her either with himself or, or with one of his sons. And even though there's been an imbalance between their families, he's not allowed to treat her like property right? and just sell her or trade her around. Like she has to be treated with dignity as a daughter. So I think if we if we keep in mind those contextual considerations, it helps a lot. Yeah. And then it, it makes it, and again, it's like just redefining terms, understanding the context, the agricultural mm-hmm. context, what they're actually talking about, what marriages actually are. Then yeah. suddenly you go from thinking a father is selling a child to someone yes. and how awful to Make sure that when she goes into this other family, her poverty isn't held against her. She gets to go with full dignity of who she is and her position in the new household. Those are two very different messages. Yes. Yes. And there's, there's a, there's a complicating factor in that it talks about if the man goes free um, and, and if the master has provided a wife for him and he has children now, they don't go free with him. So that seems to like work the opposite direction. But again, I think if we engage our imagination in the scenario and we see the woman has been married into this family in part to solve a debt, like in part because of the family of origins destitution, it could be that she's not allowed to go free with him yet, 
because the debt hasn't been paid or her connection to that family hasn't been fulfilled somehow. So it doesn't fill in all the details or answer all the questions we want to ask. But I think if we put ourselves in that ancient context and see what were the options available to these people, and then ask ourselves, what is God what is God instituting here? What is he trying to do? And it's it's not trying to encourage slavery, but trying to put guardrails around it so that it doesn't become exploitative. Yeah. And if we take this then in context of the whole book of the covenant, which would be chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus, there are a whole bunch of other guardrails in place, like, like kidnapping is strictly prohibited and you're not allowed to take advantage of a widow or orphan or fatherless. And if you injure somebody who works for you, you have to set them free. Like they, they no longer have to work for you. They don't have to pay for their freedom anymore. They just get to be released. So there's all kinds of guardrails yeah. in place that make sure that this is not what we saw in Egypt with the Israelites. And this is not what we saw in the American South mm-hmm. with the enslavement of Africans. Like this is not the same thing. There are lots of ways in which God is trying to speak into that context and ensure that his people do not exploit each other. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, again, it's kind of going back to the thing that pushed you into Exodus to begin with. How do you bear God's name? Mm -hmm. How are you reflecting God's character into the world around you? And taking on the idea of these laws as setting up guardrails to make sure that we don't give in yeah. to our human instinct to hoard, to hold on to, and to manipulate and to grow power. And instead, mm-hmm. there's all these laws that are like, nah, you actually don't get to do that. Yes. Yes. In fact, the laws primarily seem to be reigning in the power of those with the most power and privilege. Yeah. Those who those who would normally be able to just call the shots are being severely constrained by the Old Testament law. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to kind of shine a spotlight onto the Mm -hmm. things that we like to ignore, but giving us an opportunity to kind of look at it in a new light. Uh, I am curious before you go, do you have projects on the horizon line that you're very Mm -hmm. excited about? What else is coming? Yeah, I have two two major projects that I'm working on right now. One is a book on the image of God. So it will be a prequel to Bearing God's Name. And I hope we're going to call it Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. So tracing that theme of, of being the image of God and our relationship with creation through the whole Bible and from creation to new creation. So that's one project. And then I'm working on a commentary on Exodus for Baker Academic. I am absolutely loving that project and learning so much. And so that's still going to be a few years before it's out, but I'm releasing videos regularly with little tidbits of what I'm learning called Torah Tuesday. So people can find me on YouTube and watch the Torah Tuesday videos if they don't want to wait four years to see the commentary. <laughs> That's really nice. Actually, I was wondering if Torah Tuesdays leans pretty heavily in Exodus. And I was wondering mm. if that was because of your PhD. But And maybe mm. it is, but also because of 
It like gives you that release valve of what you just found out. That's so exciting. Yeah. It's a spinoff. I felt, I just feel like, oh, this is really cool. And I don't want to wait four years to tell people this. This (laughs) This could be useful to somebody right now who's preaching through Exodus or who's wrestling with this passage. So yeah, I've been on a bit of a sabbatical this summer uh, while we've been moving to Biola, but I'm hoping to start those up again soon. Nice. Well, thank you so much. Look forward to all that is coming from your plate, which is very full, but it's really rich material that you keep Mm. putting out for people and it's greatly Mm. appreciated. So thank you very much. Thank you, Cindy. It's been really fun to get to know you and fun to be on your podcast. I am so glad you sat with us around the podcast table, and I hope these conversations help you go back to the challenging bits of biblical text to search for new insights. My amazing team on Patreon is making this season of Context Matters possible. Not only are team members like Lisa Nickel and Carrie and Scott Jenkins a huge, massive support to me, but they get special things like spices from Israel and first copies of articles I'm writing and first dibs on signing up for trips to Israel with me. If you would like to join the team, you'll find a link in the episode notes. But you can also support this podcast by simply posting a link on your social media pages and inviting friends and family to join us all at the podcast table. Next week, we move from Exodus to Joshua and Judges. People ask me all the time about violence in the Old Testament. So I called up a friend who's going to help us engage that issue. You won't want to miss it. I produced and edited this podcast. Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music, and Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the final mix. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. Mm-hmm.